Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. Have you ever heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? It's, it's this idea that, you know, the more familiar you get with something, it, it can begin to get rote and routine and, and really kind of loses its value. Now, I, I don't know if I completely believe all the implications of that statement, but I think there is a truth to the fact that when something is too routine, we just don't, we don't think about it often. It doesn't, doesn't carry the weight it used to. That, that is until we get some fresh perspective on it. Let me explain what I mean. So, if some of you out there watching were honest with yourselves, you know that Christmas is about the birth of Jesus and that's all great, but there are certain Christmas movies that unless you watch them, it doesn't really feel like Christmas. I know this about you. There are some of you, it's like until you watch the Christmas story marathon and you see Ralphie and Scott Farkas, it doesn't feel like Christmas. Or maybe, maybe you're the Christmas vacation, joy to the world, Psh, lights going on, you got to see Chevy Chase or it's not really Christmas. Or maybe you're like old school Grinch and it's got to be the cartoon or it's not really Christmas. Or maybe Charlie Brown Christmas because you love that music. If you're Matt Hunter, it's the movie Elf. Like the whole Hunter family, until they watch Elf, it's not really Christmas. Do you you have one of those movies? I'll bet many of you do. If you know my family, we have all of those movies and about 20 additional ones. And if we don't watch them, it doesn't really feel like Christmas. We love Christmas movies. But I noticed probably about five or six years ago, something weird started happening. So I, I would start watching the Christmas movies with my kids. We'd put on Polar Express. And, and the moment the movie started, just boom, I'd be out like instantaneously. And my kids started making this joke. They started throwing stuff at me to wake me up in the Christmas movies. But it's like I've taken a volume every single time a Christmas movie comes on, which is so crazy because I love them. I look forward to them so much. And then when it starts, I just fall asleep. Why? Because it's just so stinking familiar. I know exactly what's going to come. I watch them every single year. And it's not that I don't love them. They just don't impact me the same way. But I noticed how much that changed when there was fresh perspective. So, so there's, there's a few movies that we typically just Virginia and I watch because the kids probably aren't all that interested in it. Some of the older movies, you know, It's a Wonderful Life, Holiday Inn, White Christmas. And so they haven't historically watched those movies with us. But This past week, we let our four older kids watch White Christmas with us. First time they'd ever seen it. And and it was so amazing how engaged I was because of how engaged my kids were. They were were laughing whenever Danny Kaye and Bing Crosby were doing the sisters act. And it was so funny to watch them engage with it. And, And they were wowed by the dancing and the singing and the snow, snow, you know, all those different elements of the movie. And they were moved whenever General Waverly at the end of the movie was being honored by his troop and to see all their emotion, like put emotion inside of me. And I didn't have any trouble staying awake. I was glued because their fresh perspective gave me new eyes to see a movie I'd seen over and over and over again. That's the power of fresh perspective. And and if ever there was a story that we needed fresh perspective on, it's the Christmas story. Because I think Christmas is one of those messages that has become dangerously familiar. We hear it every single year. We have sermons about the exact same passage of scripture. We read the same story in the book of Luke on Christmas Eve. We rehearse the exact same thing year after year after year. And it's gotten to the point that it's lost all its pizzazz and its majesty and its urgency. And what's interesting is that even some of our Christmas traditions compete with and don't complement the Christmas story. 
And so if ever we needed fresh perspective, I think the time is now so that we don't lose the meaning of it. And so we're going to look at the Christmas story with fresh eyes. We're going to look at them through the eyes of the person who was most affected by the Christmas story, by Mary. And I think as we go through this story and see her perspective, it's going to adjust the way we view Christmas. Because just stop and think for a moment with me. Like, what would it have been like to be Mary experiencing Christmas that first time? So, so here's this young lady and she finds out that she's going to give birth to the Savior of the world. But what would it have been like to be Mary and to know? I mean, it's amazing enough for those of you women who've had the privilege of having a human child inside your womb. But imagine knowing that that child in your womb is the son of God. I mean, that's crazy to think about all the emotions she would have had. And, and what, what about the feelings of inadequacy that she would, that would surface when she knows she's going to be raising the Messiah? You know, like all these thoughts must have come slamming into Mary's mind as she's thinking about what's been put upon her. And I think if we'll just stop and view the Christmas story through Mary's eyes, I think we're going to get not just fresh perspective on the Christmas story, we're going to get a fresh perspective on God himself. And so that's where we're going to turn today. We're going to learn the story of Mary and we're going to discover who she is and how she viewed the Christmas story. But we've got to start with a, a deeper understanding of Mary. And so we're going to get that in the Gospel of Luke. So open your Bibles, if you will. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 26. Now, we're going to read just the first two verses at first. Because in these two verses, we get the vast majority of the information that we know about Mary. At least biblically. And what you're going to discover very quickly is we don't know all that much about Mary. We have very few details about her from the Bible and everything else we know about her is basically filling in the blanks from the clues that we get from these two verses. So I want you to read them with me. Luke chapter one, beginning in verse 26. Listen to what it says. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now stop there. All right, so basically three main things that we know for certain, concrete. We know, first of all, that Mary was a virgin, that she was engaged to a man named Joseph, and she was from Nazareth. Basically, that's about all we know for sure. Everything else that we think we know about Mary has just been filling in the blanks based upon those three major clues. But, but like good little detectives, there's actually a whole lot we can discover about Mary from looking at those three things. So first of all, we know that Mary was likely exceptionally young because of where she was from. So, so back in that day, most women got engaged somewhere between the 12 to 17 year old mark. And, and if you were from a more rural area, which you're going to hear in a little bit, Nazareth was very rural, it usually tended toward the younger side. So Mary was likely 12 or 13 years old when the angel Gabriel comes to visit her. Now, let me, let me put that in perspective. Like in today's age, that's like a sixth grader or a seventh grader who gets a visit from an angel. I mean, that's crazy to think about. But, but even more than that, you, you got to understand too, at that age, she still lived in her parents' home. She's a, a young preteen to early teen. And so she is under the protection, care, and most importantly, the influence of her Jewish parents. Now, we don't know their names, but we know they were the ones overseeing her life. Now, that's going to be important in a little bit. Another thing, though, that we can surmise from the story is what it would have been like for Mary to live life in that day and age because of where she was from. She was from Nazareth. Now, it says that Ma Nazareth was a, a city in the region of Galilee, but, but the word city, honestly, is probably different than you and I think. So most historians believe that there couldn't have been any more than 200 to 500 people in the entire village of Nazareth. It was more like a hamlet than it was a city. I mean, I mean think about that. So some of you 
That's, that's like one apartment complex where you live or, or the neighborhood where you live. That's the whole city, village of Nazareth. 200 to 500, which meant that almost everybody knew each other because they were, many of them were related to each other, but there was a small little village. Everybody was familiar with everybody else. Now, the reason that matters is because it means that the scandal of this young lady who got pregnant when she wasn't married would be noticed by everybody. But that was the city that she grew up in. Now, interesting little tidbit of information about Nazareth is that Nazareth was not a place where many people traveled through which meant that it, it was not really affected by the outside world. Nazareth was located in, in the northern Israel area in Galilee in a basin which was miles away from any kind of major trade route. So it, it meant that all the different places where foreigners would travel through and the Roman Empire would expand would not come to Nazareth. The only people who went to Nazareth were people who either lived in Nazareth, had family in Nazareth, or who worked in Nazareth. You only went there if that was your final destination, which meant there were hardly ever any strangers in the city and there was very little outside influence. If you're, if you're living in Texas, it's like Nocona, Texas. Like, there's nothing in Nocona except cowboy boots and rural people. That, that's kind of Nazareth. You know, that's what it is in, in, in the nation of Israel. This just rural, no man, small village, which meant Mary was just a little small town girl in this village had very little influence. Now, because of that, Nazareth was like a bastion of traditional conservative Jewish culture. Now, that's important because in that day and age, the Roman Empire was expanding massively and everything was being Romanized. Now, the Roman Empire was very liberal compared to the Jewish culture. It had a very different view of religion, of marriage, of relationships, of all those kinds of things. But Nazareth was not very affected by all those because it was this very rural place. And so Mary, she would have grown up in that rural context, not under a massive Roman influence. Now, there's some implications of that. One of them is that more than likely, Mary was not educated at all. She was likely illiterate. Now, stop and think about that. Here you have the mother of the Son of God, and she can't even read. But that's, that's almost certainly her situation growing up as a young lady in Nazareth. Now, on top of that, we can even figure out what her normal daily life would have looked like because she was just an ordinary girl from a small town. So she would have done what every ordinary girl did back then. She, she would have helped her mom cook. She would have helped do the laundry. She did sewing. She went to fetch water for the family. She would do the dishes. She would tend the animals. I mean, like as basic and ordinary, as unspectacular as you can think of, that was Mary's life. Now, I want to pause there for a second, because I don't think that's the way the majority of us view Mary. When we think about Mary, we, we're more affected by tradition and by artwork. And we see this woman who looks so regal, you know, standing there with her halo. And she's like 30 something years old and looks like her whole life is put together. And that's not at all the biblical picture that we have of Mary. In the Bible, we see a young lady who's just a preteen, a teenager trying to make it in this world as ordinary and as unspectacular as can be, even as a matter of fact, in her faith. Now, if you know what it was like back then uh, to grow up in a Jewish culture, it's a lot like it is to grow up in a church culture today. There are many of you watching this and you grew up in church and so your grandmother was a Christian, your mother was a Christian, you're a Christian. It was just, it's a, it's a part of your culture and your identity and who you are. That's the way it would have been for Mary. She clearly grew up with Jewish influence. You're gonna see next week as we talk about the portion that Mary, it's called the Magnificat. It's, it's where she talks about her understanding of the promises to Abraham and the nation of Israel. So she's very Jewish. She understands Jewish culture, but it's the faith of her parents. Why? Because she's a teenager. 
She hadn't had the opportunity yet to make it her own faith. Now, I know if you're watching this and you've had teenagers or you have teenagers, you understand this predicament. Every single one of us, I got three of them, who have teenagers, one of the most pressing worries we have is that one day when our teenager goes on their own, we're worried like crazy that they're going to abandon the faith. Because we just don't know. Like, do they go to church because we force them to go to church or because they really love Jesus? Do they, do they read their Bible because we tell them to read their Bible or because they really want to know who God is? Well, what's going to happen if they go off and they abandon the faith? We are scared to death of it because we know that one day our teenagers have to determine if that's going to be their faith or our faith. Well, listen, it's no different with Mary. She was a normal teenager in a small town and she was raised in this Jewish environment. But there was going to come a moment for Mary when she was going to have to decide, was this going to be her parents' faith or was this going to be her faith? In other words, was it going to be the most important aspect of her life or something on the periphery? And what you're about to discover is that God was going to invade Mary's ordinary, simple little country life and force her to choose which one it was going to be. That's exactly what happens in verses 28 and on. Keep on reading the story. See what the angel says to her. Verse 28. And he, talking about the angel, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? Now stop there. Could you, could you imagine what it would be like to be Mary in this moment? This young lady who sees an angel who comes up to her and the angel says, hey, young lady, you're about to give birth to the son of God who's going to be the savior of the world. You're going to name him Jesus. I mean, there's a side of me that I wonder, like, what was the first thought that popped into her mind? What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> there's, there's no way she could have conceptualized this idea that she would be birthing the son of God. In, in her response, what you discover is that Mary has never had any interaction with anything miraculous or supernatural. I mean, she sees an angel and, and she, is, she is in deep panic. That's why the angel in verse 30 has to say, don't be afraid, Mary, because he's looking at Mary and he can see the panic in her eyes. He can see that she is about to faint. And he goes, Mary, calm down. Don't be afraid. I, I bring good news to you. And, and you just, you recognize that Mary, she is so overwhelmed by the sight of something so majestic, so supernatural as an angel. In verse 29, it says, but she was greatly troubled. If you were to translate that literally, it means she was deeply disturbed to the core. You could translate that Mary was about to have a cow. I mean, she was overwhelmed. She couldn't handle the thought of this angel talking to her. And even more than that, she cannot conceive of the fact that when the angel tells her, Mary, you're going to have a son, and she knows she's never even been intimate with a man, she's, the only thing she can say is, como? <laughs> say again? What? You mean I'm going to have a baby? She has the audacity to even question the very angel she was about to faint before and going, are you sure? How's it going to be that I'm going to have a baby? You see, the reason why is she knew that for her to have a baby when she had not been with a man would require a miracle, and Mary had never, ever seen a miracle before. So just in this small little retelling of the story, what we discover 
is that Mary was an ordinary small town girl who had never experienced anything remotely majestic and supernatural like this moment. But what was going on here is that God was invading her ordinary, simple little country life. And God was bringing Mary to that crisis of faith I was talking about earlier. You see, by bringing this to her attention and telling her that she was going to give birth to the Son of God and do so not being married to a man, it created a crisis because, you know, Mary, she wasn't educated, but she was no fool. She knew what would happen in the small town of Nazareth if she became pregnant and gave birth to a child without being married. She knew the price that she was going to have to pay. And in that moment, she was going to have to decide whether she was going to believe that angel and live according to that purpose or to reject it. In other words, she was going to have to decide, is this going to be my faith or is this going to be just the faith of my parents as part of my culture that I keep off on the side? Am I willing to pay the price because faith is the most important thing to me or am I going to keep God in a safe little box off here to the side doesn't really mess with what I want to do with my life? She was going to be forced by the crisis to choose. Now let me go ahead and tell you, you may think you're just an ordinary person, but God is in the business of invading our ordinary lives. And he does it with his supernatural power in order to bring us to that same moment of crisis to decide, is our faith going to be front and center in our lives or are we going to keep our faith off on the sidelines? Is, is our faith just going to be this addendum that we have because, you know, we just grew up Christian, you know? We've always gone to church. We've always loved Jesus, but, but we keep it over here. It doesn't really drive my daily decisions. It's just a part of who I am. Let me go ahead and tell you, God's not okay sitting on the sidelines. He wants to be front and center, and he's going to force us through crisis to decide if our faith is going to be the most important thing or just one of many things in our lives. And, and I've got to be honest with you, church. This is, this is one of the areas I lose sleep over the most as your pastor. I just am scared to death that there are a whole host of us here at Fielder that the reason we go to church or the reason we tune in online, the reason that we read our Bibles the reason that we say we love Jesus is because that's just all we've ever known. And we grew up in church. We've been told that's what to believe. And so we just simply believe it. That's it. And here's what I want you to know. If the only reason you go to church, the only reason you follow Jesus is because that's all you've ever known, because that's what your mom and daddy told you to do, that is a weak, shallow, anemic faith. Now, look, I'm not, I'm not trying to come down hard on those of you who grew up in the church. Praise God if you grew up in a Christian home surrounded by the stories of Jesus, had parents who loved Jesus. That is a gift. That, that's not anything that you should be ashamed of or sad for. It's a beautiful gift. But if the only reason you love Jesus is because of their faith, then that's not your faith. That's still their faith. And I'm afraid that when that faith gets tested, it's going to fall short. But I believe God will create crisis moments in our life that will force us to decide and prove up whether we have an anemic faith or a genuine faith. Now, I know it feels like I'm attacking you. Some of you are going, well, Jason, I feel like you're telling me my faith is weak. Well, prove it up, Jason. How do I know my faith is weak? It doesn't feel weak. Well, listen, there's actually some telltale signs you can look at to determine whether your faith, your faith is strong or whether your faith is weak and anemic. So if whenever you come to a major life decision, if you look to logic and reason and you just try to work your way through it systematically to come to the best decision, but you never consult God in prayer to see what he wants you to do, that is a classic sign of an anemic faith. Or if you always give God your leftovers, you never give him your first and your best. You know, when it comes to, to tithing or to, to giving to the church, if you have some money left over, you'll give. Or if you have some time left over, you'll serve. 
Or if you have some vacation left over, you'll go on a mission trip. But you never give God your first and your best. That's a classic sign of a weak faith. If you never read your Bible on your own, if the only time you ever engage with God's word is when this professional spoon feeds you God's word on Sunday mornings in the worship services, if that's your only engagement with God's word, that is a classic sign of an anemic faith. If you never expect the supernatural or the miraculous in your life, if you're one of those to go, I don't know if miracles are true, or even if you're one of those to go, no, I believe miracles are true, but they happen like in the Bible, you know, way back then, They don't happen today. Or even if you're one of those crazy people who believes that miracles still happen, but you go, well, that happens with the super Christians out on the mission field. That didn't happen in my ordinary little life. If you don't expect God to do supernatural things or miraculous things in your life, that is a classic sign of a shallow faith. So as you examine your own faith, what do you see? Now listen, I I know it sounds like I'm coming down hard on you and I gotta be honest with you. I'm not trying to say I got this thing figured out and you better figure it out because if I were being honest with you, as I went over that list that I just shared with you, I feel some fear in my own life because I'm going, God, do I give you the leftovers of my life? Because I don't know, God, if I always give you the first and, and the best of my life. And, and I got to admit to you, I don't know if I always expect God to do the miraculous. I think sometimes I, I settle for a little bit too much ordinary and I fall prey to the very same things I'm warning you about. Can I, can I just confess that to you? I think a lot of us, we struggle with recognizing our faith is supposed to be more than ordinary. In fact, if you look at the scripture, what's ordinary is supernatural and miraculous, but so many of us, we've settled for this faith that's kind of in a safe little box over here on the side, and that seems ordinary. Why? Because we're just ordinary people. And yet I believe that God wants to invade our ordinary, and he wants to call us to more. God wants to come in and invite us into things that are supernatural and miraculous. And listen, the ways he's going to do it, they're varied. For some of you, it may come through a crisis. You may have recently lost a loved one. You may be struggling with infertility. You may, be, you may have a broken marriage right now. You may, be, you may be just lost your job. Maybe you've, you've had some tragedy that's just broken you down. That's a crisis because God is invading your ordinary. Maybe it's an opportunity that's been presented to you a new job opportunity, a new relationship. Maybe it's a calling that's new that God has put on your life and God is invading your ordinary through it. Shoot, maybe it's an angel who came to you in the middle of the night who's calling you to something. However he's invading your ordinary, it always comes with an invitation into God's supernatural universe. But let me tell you, it also comes with a price tag because when God invites you into the supernatural, it's always hard. It's always costly because the cost is what forces us to decide to make our faith central or to keep it off on the sidelines. I remember one of the times when God invaded my ordinary. It was was when I was a freshman in college. I had gone to college as a brand new believer and I had come to faith that summer right before going to Baylor. And when I was there my freshman year, I was fulfilling a dream I'd had since I was six years old to to pursue medicine. I was gonna be a medical doctor. I'd known it for my whole life basically. And I I made decisions like anybody else did. You know, I had my ordinary decision-making grid. What's going to give me a lot of money? What's going to make me respectable? What's going to make my parents proud of me? Being a doctor, that'll be it. So I'm going to pursue it. Since I was brand new to my faith, I had never really learned about what it meant to pray about your future or seek God's guidance. So I'm just trucking along, doing my ordinary thing. Until my freshman year, God invades my ordinary. It happened at the top of my dorm hall. I I had been challenged to do my quiet time and I'm praying And as clear as anything in my life, I felt God come in 
and say, Jason, I want you to give up medicine. I want you to go into ministry, which was the absolute last thing I wanted to hear because I, I had my own desires. I'd been working to this for years. I, this is what I wanted with my life. And God was trying to get all up in my business and I didn't like it. So I wanted to keep God off on that little safe box over there going, don't you mess with me. I'll go to church. I'll pray some. I'll read my Bible. So I'm, I'm praying right now, but don't get all messed up in my, in my future, my career, God. But God was invading my ordinary and he was inviting me into something supernatural. And by God's incredible grace and persistence, he won the day and I said, okay, God, I'll do it. And it is a decision I have never regretted in all my life. Now, it hadn't always been easy to be in ministry, but I guarantee you I have seen miracles from Almighty God himself. I have experienced his supernatural power and I have grown so much spiritually in my faith because God forced me to get God out of that box and bring him into the front and center of my life. And I want you to know God wants to do the exact same thing in your life. Listen, I know, I know there are a lot of you and you're, you're living what you think is a good, ordinary life, but God has so much more for you than that. But the only way you're going to experience the, or, the, the, the beauty and the power that supersedes the ordinary is when you say, okay, God, I'm okay with it not being on the periphery anymore. I want to make you front and center. But there's something that's going to keep you from making that decision. It's called sin. It's called selfishness. See, every single one of us, our natural tendency is to live for self. I mean, it started all the way back in the Garden of Eden when God said, you can have all this stuff, all the fruit, all the trees, everything. Just don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet here you have Adam and Eve whispered to by Satan and it looked desirable and they said, I want it. I want to have it. And their selfishness, selfishness drove them to disobey God and to take what they shouldn't have. And that sin of selfishness, seeking our own gain, has been persistent in us. And it is the very thing that keeps us from letting God be front and center in our lives. Because as long as we're living for ourselves, we're going to end up in a self-destructive pathway. We're going to be at, at odds with God. The Bible calls it enmity, fighting with God himself. And we won't ever be able to live for him. We'll keep on living for ourselves. If you think about it, the scriptures present it like there's, a, like there's a, a throne in our hearts. There's a driver's seat, if you will. And there's somebody who's sitting in that driver's seat. And we naturally want to sit on our own throne in that driver's seat and dictate where we're going to go in life. But God is not okay with him sitting on the sideline while we drive our own lives. He wants to come in and invade and take over. And there comes a moment we have to let him take over. And the only thing that will compel us to give him the driver's seat is belief in the gospel of Jesus. Because the gospel is the reminder that our sin will only take us to brokenness. And the end of that journey is hell itself. But God loved us so much that he sent his own son through the womb of Mary. In fact, Mary knew it. Back when it says in verse 31, behold, you shall name him Jesus, Mary knew exactly what that name meant. Now we don't, when we hear Jesus, we don't understand it because we don't speak Aramaic. But the angel would have spoken to Mary in Aramaic. And the name Jesus in Aramaic is Yeshua which means Yahweh saves. Mary knew exactly what that name meant. God had brought salvation and would bring it through this child. And you and I know the full story. This child would grow up to become the perfect lamb of God who would take our sinfulness and our selfishness and all our misdeeds upon his own shoulders and be crucified on a cross so that those misdeeds could be forgiven and we could be reconciled to God. And when we come to that place, of thanking God for his good work for us and trusting in him, he comes and takes over our lives and he gets to be front and center. That's the beautiful message of the gospel. So my first question for you is, 
Have you come to that faith in the gospel? There must come a moment when you dethrone yourself because you realize you're wrecking your life. And I think there's some of you watching this right now and you know that. I mean, you know, as you look at your life, you've just had trouble after trouble. You've hurt yourself. You've hurt everyone else around you. You are wrecking your life. And God is working so hard to get your attention to say, stop trying to drive your own life and let me drive. Give me the driver's seat. You scoot out of the way. But there must come a moment you make that decision and you declare your faith in Jesus Christ. The scriptures tell us it's very easy. We just have to confess our faith in Christ. We repent of our sins, ask for forgiveness, and ask Jesus to take over. We put him on the throne. And then the word of God says, we obey it through a, a beautiful, simple act called baptism where we declare publicly that he now has taken over. And I believe there are some of you watching this and you need to take that step of faith. Listen, I got some great news for you. Next Sunday, December 13th, we are gonna have a baptism celebration. It's gonna be at 4.30 p.m. in all our different campuses. And if you're watching this online and you're going, I need to do that. I'm tired of wrecking my life. I'm tired of all the problems I'm causing. I need God to take over. I'm ready to publicly give him center stage of my life. Not to let my faith be on the periphery any longer. I want it to be front and center. If that's the case, then you can let us know that you're ready to be baptized. Here's how you do it. It's very simple. You can get out your phone and you can text the word next step to 94253. Or if you prefer, that, that'll just give you an automatic link to take you to this website, www.fielder.org slash next step. Just like you see it right there on your screen. And that'll be a small form that you'll fill out on that webpage that'll tell us who you are and that you're either ready to be baptized or you're ready to place your faith in Christ. Or maybe you just want to talk to a pastor. You're not sure, you got questions, but you, you think you might be ready. If you're there, don't wait. Take, take the moment right now to go to filler.org slash next step. Fill out the form. A pastor within 24 hours will reach out to you and email you or call you and help you work through this decision because we want you to be there at the baptism celebration. There are already dozens in, in our church who are going to be baptized at this baptism celebration and you may need to be a part of it. So prepare your heart. Take that step if you need to. But listen, I, I know, I know there are many of you watching this. You've already taken that step of faith. You've, you've been baptized. You've declared your faith in Jesus Christ. But let me warn you of this. And I, I say this often. Every morning you wake up is a new decision you have to make to let Jesus be sent in your life. Because every single morning you wake up, you're going you're to want to knock him right back off the throne. Let me go ahead and forewarn you. God is not okay sharing his cheekage with you where you get to have one cheek on and he gets to have one cheek on the throne. It's not, that's not the way it works. Every morning you wake up, you gotta get off the throne and let him get on it. You gotta make sure that he is leading in your life. And I want you to know you have a chance today to be recalibrated to that through the taking of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of why he deserves to have the throne of our lives. The Lord's Supper is a picture that he deserves to be the one who's the centerpiece of our relationships, of our finances, of our parenting, of our careers, of our futures, of everything in our life. And so I want you to prepare to take the Lord's Supper if you're a believer in Jesus and let that recenter you and remember why Christ should be the centerpiece. So what's gonna happen is you're gonna go get the elements, get them ready, and you're gonna worship through this next song and prepare your heart. And when this song is over, I'm gonna lead us in the taking of the Lord's Supper. Now's the time, get your heart ready.